Well, we are taking a couple week break, uh, several weeks rather, from uh, the study of Romans that we've begun. And so you can plan in the new year to bring those Roman scripture journals back, uh, and we will return to Romans. But for a few weeks, we want to talk about Christmas. Merry Christmas. In fact, uh, in the back, there's a little music stand like this, and we've got these little books called Light of the World. It's by a pastor from up in Canada, Jonathan Griffiths. And if you need a little read just to help you think about Christmas, maybe from a slightly different angle, and then maybe hand it on to someone, uh, we, we get these with the hope that you'll take one and pass them on. Uh, read it first so you can interact with whoever you give it to, uh, but it's just a short little booklet um, like 40 pages, but super small, super easy. It'll take you 30 minutes to read. And something you could give to someone and talk about what Christmas is. What, you know, even maybe as a way to invite them to Christmas Eve. We're going to have candlelight service. And you could say, hey, here's a little book, Light of the World. Join us Sunday, 6 o'clock for candlelight service. And, and again, maybe God would use that. So grab that book. Join us on Sunday. But even now, again, this morning, we, we want to... Look at the familiar. If you have your Bible, we're going to spend these weeks, last week and today, in in Luke's account. I mentioned that of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's only Matthew and Luke who give us the details of the Christmas story, the, the details of the birth of Jesus. Mark jumps right in with Jesus as an adult, and John goes theological and talks about the logos and the, the word, and, and it's awesome too, and we've looked at that in the past, but... But for the accounts of baby Jesus, you go to Matthew and you go to Luke. And I wanted to spend last weekend today, and probably Christmas Eve, in in Luke. We're going to get to chapter 2, but look back into the passage we were in last week. When the angel came to Mary, it's often called the Annunciation. As the angel is telling Mary what is going to happen to her, how as a virgin she will become pregnant, and as she says, how can that be? Because I know biology and, you know, and the angel says, because God, <laughs> God can do miracles is the, the, the short answer. Take a look at verse 30, verse 30. So, so Mary is terrified, as anyone would be at an angel. They're, they're probably not cherub, cute, chubby looking things. They, they would be terrifying warrior type angelic hosts. And so the angel says, do not be afraid. In the old King James, that is fear not. Mary, you have found favor with God. And that word favor is the same word as grace. You have found grace with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We'll pause. We learn in Matthew's account that uh, The angel told Joseph in a dream similar things and that he was to be called Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. We'll we'll talk about that today, but that's what Jesus means, God saves. So that's the name this baby used to have. And here's what I wanted you to look at uh, from last week, verse 32. He will be great. I've been thinking about that all week. I mean, that, that... if we read that too quickly, that's just a throwaway statement. He'll be great, and, and then, you know, we get into a really, like, deep stuff about being the son of the most high and, you know, being one who fulfills prophecy, but, but great, great. I was thinking this week about the word great. Probably that's a word, if we use it 
at all, we use it too flippantly, you know. Oh, that was a great sandwich. I mean, great, you know. It might be a good sandwich, but, but a great, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Great really should be reserved for things that are capital G, right, right, you know, kind of a thing. Like, great. And I think in the context, it is. This baby, Jesus, God saves, will be great. And we've already thought about him in our service today through the catechism and what it means that he's at the right hand as our king, as our priest, as our prophet, as we've thought about him in relation to his coming. Anyway, keep, keep that sort of floating as we jump ahead now into chapter two of, of Luke. So we're, we're not going through all of Luke. Uh, the story, as you are maybe thinking and wondering as you get to chapter two, uh, Mary ponders all of this news. That's where we left her last week. She goes and visits her cousin who's pregnant with John the baptizer. Luther wanted me to make sure to remind you he wasn't a Baptist. If anything, he was an Evie Free guy. <laughs> You're listening. Good. But he was the baptizer, right? And so that's what, what John would do and would be. So, so Mary goes to her cousin, Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John six months ahead. And they have this amazing interaction And then Mary has this amazing song of praise, the Magnificat, we call it. And then we get back to John's birth and Zechariah's prophecy. And that brings us to chapter two. So if the one in her womb is to be great, listen to how understated the birth is, right? I mean, great. And, and, and now listen to the contrast as Luke records. Let me read Luke 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." The great one, the one who's to be called great. And then Luke, as he gets to the account, just sort of says there was the census and everybody had to travel and it came time and there was no room and, and she laid him in this, this feeding trough, this, this manger. It's just understated. It's, it's so, just such a contrast and so like God to do that to, on the one hand, tell Mary he's gonna be great and he is. And yet his birth wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they didn't get to go into the hospital and do the little tour like parents get to do you know, these days and see the room and, and kind of get an idea and, and plan. Like, and there's, there's a lot of scandal involved and we'll, we'll look at that as well. We don't know much about her pregnancy. We don't know much about the nine months, uh, but, but her labor, it was nothing great, really, if you, if you think about it. 
So the Roman emperor, he issues this decree that this census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And they are to travel 80 miles. That's easy for us nowadays in a car, right? We're there in an hour or less. But it wasn't an hour trip on foot from Nazareth in the north. That's where uh, they had lived. uh, But they had to return to, to Bethlehem, to the town of David. This is where Joseph was from. Being from the line of David, this is where his family lineage was. And so this census that had to be taken meant everybody had to go and and get to where they were from. And of course, we we noted last week some of the prophecies from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem. It really was kind of like a little backwater town. Not prominent at all. Now there's a whole issue that people raise, those that want to discredit this account. They, they talk about uh, how Quirinius, how, again, because the way the Bible reads it here in ESV, Uh, Back there in verse 2, the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and and there's other writings, there's an indication that there was in fact one of, that that he ruled at another time that doesn't quite fit the birth of Jesus, so people say Luke Luke got it wrong, but there's a couple things just to note quickly, Um, that word when, and if you have an ESV, you might have a footnote pointing this out, the little number one, Uh, that word could also be translated like this. This was the registration be before Quirinius was governor. That, that word in Greek can mean when or, or before. So if it's before, the problem is solved. Um, before he was his, the governorship. And because what happens actually, and it's in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, that's when uh, we, we know about the more well-known census of A.D. 6. These events are probably happening in, in like B.C. 5 or 6. So there's about 10, 12-year span of time difference between the well-known census that Luke talks about in Acts 5. Remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. It's like volume 1, volume 2. He addresses that well-known one. This is um, him referring to something else, either when Quirinius, before he was governor, or again, it could maybe... Re- refer to him not being in quite a governorship role, but just in a leadership role, and another census was, was had. At any rate, um, if those kind of little apologetic issues are interesting to you, I've got lots of things I can send you and you can read. We don't need to get tripped up, is, is my point, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, because Luke, he, he really wants us to know what really happened. I mean, that's what Luke is doing. In this whole setup here in verse 2, right, everything he's spelling out. In those days, there was a decree from Caesar Augustus that everyone should be registered. There was this registration either when or before Quirinius was governor. Everyone went, and, and, and he's going at lengths to, to talk about this. Again, not in a, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away sort of way, right? He's not saying... Once upon a time, right? When we hear those words or read those words, we know, oh, that's make-believe. Luke doesn't write like that. 
None of the gospel writers write like that. So don't let people trip you up. These are not written in those kinds of ways. There were ways to write like that in the first century. There were stories. Uh, But Luke, and he talks about this back in chapter 1, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning these things. So Luke is not writing once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. He's writing about things that happened. And there's no issue really related to the supposed contradiction of time there. Verse 6. Let's jump to verse 6. While they were there, they get to Bethlehem, right? This, this 80-mile trip on foot. We don't know anything about a donkey. It's nice in nativity scene plays and whatnot, but we don't know. They definitely were on foot. So verse 6. When they, I'm sorry, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. Again, he's just understating these events of the great one. To her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. A manger is just a feeding trough. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now let's chat for a minute about the inn I love my ESV Bible, uh, and, and it's very accurate and faithful to the original, but it also wants to honor some of the famous translations like the King James, for example, and of course, the inn and the innkeeper, you know, and some guy opening a little, little thing going, no room, you know, kind of a thing. Like, we've seen that a million times on TV and plays. Maybe you've acted that play out when you were little, um, uh, that, that word that is translated in um, probably isn't anything about an inn. Um, it's really just a word that means room. It means room. Um, so if you have sentimental feelings about nativity plays, I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin it for a moment. Um, no innkeeper is mentioned at all. Maybe an inn, but, but really, what, what is going on? It's not like it was the local Hilton or Marriott chain, and, and they were booked up on Christmas Eve, okay, right? Um, and we won't even get to probably how it had no, nothing related to being, he wasn't probably born in December. That, that's, that's nowhere in here either. There's other reasons we, we celebrate his birth this time of year. Um, but, but again, mis, misconceptions. So this word inn, um, scholars in the last 10, 15 years have helped us understand, um, and they've made good cases, uh, compelling cases, that this Greek word that, again, we see as in, it's used three times in our New Testament, and it, it just really means a guest room. Luke is going to use this word again in chapter 22, verse 11, when Jesus sends his disciples to find the room for them to meet for the Last Supper. Luke twenty two eleven. Jesus says, tell, when, when you go and to this home, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Where's the room? Where's the guest room? Where I may eat 
Passover with my disciple. And so it's used here in Luke 2. It's used there in Luke 22. And then uh, Mark speaks of the same account of Jesus sending the disciples to find the guest room. So the passage isn't saying that there was no room in the local hotel, you know, anything like that. But probably, um, probably Joseph made it to his family's home. If he was of this line that he was and had to go to Bethlehem, there were other family members that had to get there. And when they show up and they arrive uh, at, at his family home, uh, there's no room for them. They're, it's full. Their, fam, their family's house is, is full. And Mary's pregnant. And so what are they to do? And so again, scholars go on to note that probably this is simply an adjacent uh, guest room connected to their main living uh, home of, of, uh, of where Dave, um, excuse me, Joseph's family was from. And so as the text says, there was no room for them there in the inn. And so it goes on, verse 7. No room backing up, so she gave birth and laid him in, in the manger, in the feeding trough. Probably not a stable, that's, that's also, there's nothing about a stable. Uh, we infer that if it's a feeding trough. Uh, but again, in first century homes, scholars help us to understand that an adjacent room um, might have been full, but there would have been a feeding trough, this manger, um, and we think, really, why would they let the animals in? Again, it's different than our homes nowadays. Um, in, in that time, it was common uh, for these feeding trough mangers to be kept in the main room right near where the animals were housed, just a few feet away in an adjacent outside spot. So all of that to say, likely, when it comes time for Mary to give birth, while they're at the home of Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem, the room in which they stayed, probably a tight little guest room, little chamber, um, it couldn't accommodate them. So Mary had to give birth in like a larger family area that happened to have the manger. Again, it wasn't quiet and dark and, you know, just Mary and Joseph it would have been loud and noisy and people all over the place. It wasn't exactly the easiest time and place to give birth. Verse 8. In that same region, so nearby, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So shepherds are out there keeping watch. They're not home. They're working. They don't have beds like Mary and Joseph either. And God chooses, we don't know why, but he chooses to to let these shepherds know what is going on. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. They were terrified. So once again, just as the angel had said to Zechariah about John, fear not. Just as the angel had told Mary, we saw this last week, fear not. Just as the angel communicated in Joseph's dream, fear not. Once again, an angel communicates to these shepherds, fear not. Don't be afraid. And they were. For behold, verse 10, I bring you gospel. What does gospel mean from Romans? Good news. I bring you good news. And this news, he goes on to say, is of great joy that is for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
the great one, the one who's to be given the name Jesus. Notice the three uh, titles right here. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Don't forget, Christ isn't the last name, right? This was Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised anointed king that God's people were waiting for. That's what Christ means. And he's Savior and he's Lord. We'll talk about those in a moment. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a star over the nativity scene? No. No star yet. The star comes a little later when the Magi come. Their sign was a baby. You're going to find a noisy, crying little baby. Lots of crying he made, very likely, as all babies make, even though our kids are going to practice singing in a second. No crying he made. That's okay. Just, just remember, he, he did cry. You're going you're gonna to see this sign, shepherds. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a feeding trough. The shepherds, they go and they go see what God has done. And the story goes on, and this is likely where we'll pick up on Sunday night. This multitude of uh, angelic hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. Well, here's what I want to do just in a couple of minutes that we have left. We, we, we tried to look at what really happened. Again, I believe it's an understated birth compared to what we should expect if, if this one was great, right? But, but Luke just tells us the facts. But here's what, what matters. I mean, it's all fun. It's fun to learn little things about the word in, and it probably means guest room and, and, and so on. But what really matters is why it matters, why it matters. Again, Luke is not writing legend. We've talked about that already. This isn't once upon a time. This isn't a long time ago in a galaxy far away. The New Testament writers, including Luke, they, they are not writing legend, but they are communicating oral history that, that has been passed on by eyewitnesses, people that saw it and lived it. But here's, here's why it matters. I mentioned the three titles, but before that, I want you to hear again what we could call, what one writer uh, calls them. One of the books I'm reading this year is called Christmas Uncut. Uh, I have a few of these in my office, and um, my hope is to give them out. And so this writer, Carl Lafferton, he, he notes this. In, in this passage, we have a double royalty going on, right? Listen again to verse 10 and 11. The angel said, fear not. Behold, I bring you gospel of great joy, good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. So there you go. There's the first royal lineage that is true of Jesus. He is of the line of David, Israel's greatest ever ruler. Uh, sometimes my kids will ask me, Dad, who's your favorite living president? <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you all what I think. It's, you have no idea, honestly. Don't even think you do. But imagine if we, as we think about in our history, right, we, the best aspects of Lincoln, the best aspects of Roosevelt, the best aspects of Washington, and then any of the more modern ones, and what, like just the best, right? That's, that's what David was to God's people. I mean, he, he was the best. Now, he, he wasn't perfect at all, but, but he was the, the one, 
He set the standard, and that's why God promised his line, and because God promised to him, his line would, would be the one. And so Jesus is born um, of this royalty, the house of David. Um, notice, though, Joseph, he isn't living there in Bethlehem. He's not on a throne, right? David's line, there had been a lot of problems. Uh, the kings of Israel, they got into a lot of trouble, and there had been, you know, their being taken captive away from the land, and, and they've come back. There's not a lot going on with the king uh, anymore, but, but this is a promise one day, because God had promised the line of David, there would be a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. We noted that last week, and, and that's Jesus. And so the angel says, unto you is born in the city of David, this, this one with these three titles. But the other family uh, side of the family tree, the other royalty is in fact the divine royalty. The fact that the angel says a savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, and, and using the phrase the Lord, boy, he's stacking it up. This one, not only is he of the line of David, but, but he's divine royalty. He is God himself. We learn of his, his human royalty. We learn of his heavenly royalty, and it matters. The one that we're celebrating, friends, the one that we're enjoying decorations and candles, maybe you're enjoying present sh- buying and um, enjoying light shows like a bunch of us enjoyed last night um, in our neighborhood and, and other parties. But there's so much at this time of year, so much about Christmas time. Let's hear this again and again and again and again. That baby was to be great. He was to have the name Jesus. He would be the one who would save the world of their sins. And he was of the line of David, that human royalty, but he was God. He's Christ. He's Savior. He's Lord. And, and they speak of his jobs. What would Jesus grow up to do? As a, as a human, he would follow Joseph. He would learn to be a carpenter. But that, that wasn't what he was born for. He was born to be Savior. He even said as much. I came to lay down my life, to give my life away for the lost, for everyone. He came to be Christ. He came to be Messiah. He came to be that king. And he came to be Lord, the one in charge, this king. They had been disappointed over years and years and years in human rulers. Maybe like we get disappointed in our rulers. Do we ever get disappointed in our politicians? I think we do. But Jesus, the great one, is this king who's come, who came. He will come again. He's the leader we're looking for. He's Savior, he's Christ, he's Lord, and he's great. He's really great. So as you continue into this now final week, spend time soaking in these amazing truths of who he is. Pick up a book, share that with someone. The light of the world, there's another description of who he is. He, he has come. He has come. It matters. We need say, a savior. We need a king, leader, messiah. We need a lord. We do. We do. Would you stand with me and I'll dismiss us for prayer.
As we sang a few minutes back, God, thank you that Christ is born. Thank you. Christ, the great one, the son of the most high, the one given the name Jesus, God saves our Savior, our Messiah, Christ, anointed one, our King, and our Lord, the one you call us to follow. Help us not forget, especially this week, heading into Christmas, that our call is to be disciples, followers of this one Jesus, who is this. Even now in his ascension, he is this. May we look to him and follow him. Thank you for him. Thank you for Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.